This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on episode six of season two. It got to the point where it didn't feel like we were getting anywhere at all until uh, we had picked up some property that was right across the fence line on the same exact section, but across the fence line, farmed completely different. And the ground that we had just picked up is actually better soil if you go by the soil maps of it. But when you put them side by side, taken within just a couple minutes of each other, it looks like you have potting soil in one hand and it looks like you have a gray washed out, just kind of a sick looking soil in the other. Jamestown, North Dakota farmer Tony Wagner joins the show. For the past 15 years or so, Tony has been on a journey to improve the soil health of his family's farmland, which runs the gamut from sandy to high clay soils. He's located about 100 miles west of Fargo, so further east than a lot of the North Dakota pulse growers. But he says they've worked well for him in his rotation. In today's episode, Tony shares how he got into pulses, why he's stuck with them over the years, and how they fit into building healthier soils. Also, he shares a really interesting project at the end of planting peas with flax as a companion crop to try to keep them off the ground. So make sure you stick around for that. To kick things off, though, here's a little bit more about Tony's background. We run about uh, seven, eight different crops in our rotation on a perfect year, but kind of got into pulse crops because uh, we've got some ground that is pretty light and we're looking for something to be able to catch that early moisture. But then by the time the rain starts to shut off in that July timeframe that we're already through the flowering and maybe we could uh, try to get some production on uh, some of these lighter grounds. So we ended up going with, uh, uh, started off with a yellow field pea, did that for just a year or two. I started probably in around 2006, got into the greens because there was a premium in the green. Next year there was a premium in the yellows. So then if you sit here and try to follow it back and forth, you really can't seem, you're always a year behind. So we stuck with the greens, hit it through the highs and lows, consistently just try to have a crop to sell. Now, one thing you should know about Tony is that he's always thinking, and a lot of his ideas may seem out of the box at first. But it served him well to find out what works best for him on his farm for both profitability and sustainability. One of those quote-unquote wild ideas was trying to fit two pea crops into one season. What happened after we started raising our field peas is they're usually harvested the middle to the tail end of July, and we found out that the ground was very bare at that time, and it seemed like we could still have a lot of of growing time for something to have on it because it seems like uh, in the wintertime, whether you have an open winter or you get a real heavy downpour, pulse crops, legume crops don't uh, have much residue on them. So I wanted to to try to get something else growing there. And uh, the first thing we kind of started off doing was to see if we could raise uh, two pea crops in one year. It was around the 15th of July for here in North Dakota. And we thought that's got to be early enough. We can maybe try putting another pea crop right into it. I've got a consultant that I've worked with for many years, ran past him. We're both kind of at that time, not quite sure if it was going to work. I proceeded to seed the field. It was only maybe 80 acres. We tried out just to see if we could double crop and turned out that it decided to quit raining on us, but the low spots were able to germinate and we were able to get it to flower. 
and then the frost came and then that was kind of end of the story. But uh, through the winter, we noticed that there was uh, enough standing that I was able to catch the snow so we could be able to have some moisture inside there and not get these wind erosion and if we end up getting a big downpour. So we thought that was kind of what we were shooting for. But then the next year, we put spring wheat on that ground and we pulled off on that type of soil, which is a very light soil, probably the best wheat that we've ever pulled off. And we did a soil test on it and the nitrogen was pretty high in that soil. So we decided to slowly start working into cover crops. And at that time, there really wasn't too much literature on it. That was probably about 15, 14, 15 years ago on cover crops. I mean, the people were doing it, but it, it's not as big as what it is now. Any magazine that you pick up, any meeting that you would go to when we used to have meetings, they would always talk about soil health and cover crops and everything. So our consultant and I were, were kind of going down this road on our own farm, just doing what we wanted to try out for cover crops and on these early harvested fields, you know, like your field peas. And once we found out that we could start adding different things into it, like the first year we just did field peas, the next year we started adding in some grasses and then we started adding in some brassicas. And now we're only up to like a three, a four-way mix, and we cover crop 100% of our pea ground that is harvested. So this attempt to squeeze in an extra pea crop led him to the discovery of the benefits of cover crops. I asked Tony what he observed that first year with those peas that stuck around through the winter that convinced him that this was the way to go. The biggest thing we noticed was when we would get these downpour rains coming on this light soil, that wherever there was residue, it almost acted like like little dams to slow the water down. So instead of this big washed out area that would take a whole entire hillside, and then it usually all funnels down to a, a foot spot, and then it ends up cutting it two feet deep, it actually made almost like little padlocks, little dams all the way on down the line. And it just, the water, we noticed the residue would stick wherever there was a plant sticking up in the air, and it didn't take all the residue and wash it off the soil. So that was our big aha, uh-huh, we're on to something here. So then that's when we started adding everything else into it then too. And that has been the journey of how I started off on cover crops 14, 15 years ago. Now, over that time, Tony has changed his cover crop mix, but he still is planting them right after harvesting his peas. In fact, he says planting immediately after is important to capture some of that remaining moisture before it goes away. So meaning that we're able to harvest so much earlier, what we're doing is we're taking and putting these covers on it right away. As soon as we're done harvesting that field, or sometimes we're actually in the field at the same exact time when we're harvesting and we're putting a cover on it because there's usually moisture in the ground when you're harvesting. And as soon as you take that cover off, because there's a lot of times these these pulse crops, especially field peas in particular, are very, very thick. They'll grow a, a as high as up to your waist and I've even had some up to my chest before but they tend to fall over they're a very structurally very weak plant they end up getting some sort of a disease inside of them that that uh, makes the straw strength very delicate so usually there's moisture underneath the ground but as soon as you harvest it and I'm not joking it's within 24 hours you can have moisture on the top of the ground where you could take your finger 
and find this moisture to 24 hours later, you're down an inch and a half trying to look for the moisture. So we try to get out there right away. So what this does is it tries to get an armor on that soil is because this cover crops will go really quick. They'll be out of the ground in probably five days if you've got a decent amount of moisture there. Where you can get this up, it's protecting the ground, starting to shade it just a little bit. You catch a couple more rains on top of it. Your temperatures are 70 to 80 degrees. It starts to protect it. You do get a little bit of moisture. It's able to hold that cover inside there. So then these plants all start growing up and then the frost comes and then they die. So you're almost getting pretty much like a double crop. You've got that much more roots going down into the soil. You've got that much more cover up on top. Now, this is just one piece of Tony's overall soil health program that he's built over these past 15 years. Since that first year of planting, the second crop of peas he talked about, he's really expanded his cover crop program overall. One challenge, though, to soil health is that you don't always realize how much progress you're making over time. And that's certainly been the case with Tony. It got to the point where it didn't feel like we were getting anywhere at all until uh, we had picked up some property that was right across the fence line on the same exact section, but across the fence line, farmed completely different. And the ground that we had just picked up is actually better soil if you go by the soil maps of it. But when you put them side by side, taken within just a couple minutes of each other, it looks like you have potting soil in one hand, and it looks like you have a gray washed out, just kind of a sick looking soil in the other. After seeing that, we're hoping that we can start building up this organic matter. And I mean, our organic matter isn't really high to begin with. And you would think that the percent should just start rolling in on what your organic matter is, but it doesn't really work out that way. But once you, you start going out there and you start digging in the soil with a shovel, it is amazing on how black the soil is. And that's where your moisture is inside that organic matter. And it's able to hold it in there a little bit longer. You know, whether it can gain you another week, I, I have no idea. It all depends on how windy it is. But uh, that's what we're shooting for. So sometime down the road, we can maybe start integrating some different crops into this ground but from where I started off at I wish I would have taken a picture it literally didn't feel like we were getting anywhere at all that was the biggest eye-opener and now you know I've got that drive to just we got to keep doing what we're doing because visually it's working and it's so hard to put a number you know when people ask you know doing cover crops on you know whether it's wheat stubble that's harvested early whether it's uh, pulse crops or legumes or anything, what kind of dollar are you getting in return? And it's it's really tough because having that moisture reserve for an extra 7 to 14 days, I mean, it, that's got to be something. What about the, the wind erosion? What's that worth? What about the, the water erosion? What's that worth? I mean, there's, there's so many things that are connected to it that you really can't put a dollar amount on I mean, it just on your own farm then they've probably done it before at universities and but until you start doing it on your own farm and it, it's not free to run across and, and do all this stuff i mean equipment doesn't run on cinnamon you know you've got to put a dollar amount on that too but when people ask it's it's really difficult to try to come up with a number to know if what you're doing is really worth it but we could drag this all the way into using it on our 
our saline spots, you know, we're slowly starting to gain those back. Those were getting totally out of hand now. Even though he's located in the eastern part of North Dakota, where they get quite a bit more rain than in other pulse-growing areas like western North Dakota or Montana or Washington, peas have still worked out well for the Wagners. But he says he's definitely had better results on them on his lighter ground, especially in particularly wet years. Yeah, that's where we originally started off, was putting it on our really light ground. And we saw how well the wheat responded to it. So we started messing around with uh, putting some peas on a little bit heavier soil and then following it with corn. Corn does amazing on that type of ground going where you had field peas the the year before with a cover growing onto it. But uh, we've noticed that on a real heavy soil, peas do not like a lot of moisture at all. They drowned out very, very easily. Summer of 2020, we had uh, what we thought was going to be a really good pea crop, and we ended up putting it on some ground with the intentions of following corn in 2021. And then we planted it, which felt like we were planting and pudding, and then it proceeded to rain, and then it started to rain more, and then when you thought it was done raining, it kept raining, and it turned out to be... <laughs> some of the some of the worst peas that we had but that was on heavier ground the light ground did just fine but the heavier ground put it this way it wasn't happy we're hoping that the corn is going to do well on it but the field peas didn't do all that great just because they don't like moisture at all so i think if you've got some very very sandy soils it's worth trying it peas have worked out very very well for us but you start looking at today's market in the spring of 2021, I could see why some people, unless you're going for the soil health side of things, that they would kind of go a, a different route and not put them in at all. But if you're looking for a rotation-wise, there's so much that comes to these earlier crops. Like you know, with us talking about field peas in particular, by the time that these fields are harvested, weeds haven't even gone to seed yet. And that's one thing that we noticed is where we have a lot of field peas in our rotation on our lighter ground. We have completely different weeds in those fields. Grasses are our big problem, which you get onto our other fields. We'll have kochia and the different types of pig weeds and more of the broadleafs is uh, the problems that we have in those fields, but those have never raised field peas before. Those are always have the later crops, the, the corn and the soybeans. So if you end up getting a spot that uh, ends up drowning out and then drying out when the weeds come back, they've got the rest of the season until October before you're doing anything. Well, by that time, that plant is completely matured out. So that's one thing that's really interesting with peas is in July, when you go in and desiccate them, it's all just plant tissue. They're not setting seeds or anything like that yet. So I like it because it's great for the rotation. But it, it all depends what your current situation is. If you go in and have that visit and need to put different crops in your rotation, I could see where where you could end up doing that because uh, the price of a pulse crop is not near what uh, your other main commodities are, your corn, your beans. Now, I mentioned earlier that Tony is always dreaming up new ideas. One of those was to try to use a companion crop, flax specifically, to grow as an intercrop with his peas to see if the peas might climb up the flax to stand taller. 
So it was a few years ago, I decided to try to put some sort of a companion crop in with our field peas. And the whole reason I decided to do that is it was a year where our peas had really fell over. And I noticed the only place that they were still standing is where there happened to be a weed plant, which had been a Canada thistle in particular. So you'd have just these random spots with this thistle, and that's where the uh, field peas were still standing. And what's interesting is the vines would go and wrap all the way around these plants, and it would still hold them up. And it'd combine just beautiful in these spots, which they're really small. They're the size of a kitchen table. So that got me thinking to get a hold of my consultant, which I run really weird ideas past him just to see if he's ever had anybody else think of this. We come up with some pretty neat ideas. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but that's the name of the game. I mean, you remember your trials that don't work. Those are the ones that really stick to your mind. But uh, uh, so anyway, I had asked him, say, hey, what uh, these field peas are standing up in these areas where these weeds are. I think we should try to put a, a companion crop in there to try to get this stuff to stand up. So if I probably would have looked online, there's probably been some people who have done this, but I decided to go with flax because flax and field peas can use the same exact pre-emergence. And I never spray a post on any of our field peas until it's time to desiccate them to harvest. So I thought, well, flax should work because you can use the same chemical. It's totally different size. I've got a cleaner that I can run and separate these two out. Well, this should work out great. We decided to come up with a rate that we thought would work, but we were just kind of guessing. So um, so we ended up putting a uh, flax down right with the seed. We weren't going to change our depth at all. We're shooting for our main crop that's going to be growing, which was our field peas. And the flax was, well, the flax is either going to make it or it's not because the ones that are down too deep probably won't germinate. Then there's bound to be some that are going to scatter their way through it. And uh, we went at a, a fairly low rate. I believe we went, uh, oh gosh, I don't even know if we went a third of the recommended rate. And we thought, well, this is a good place to start out. And and it, it worked out really, really well. It, it did exactly what we wanted it to do. And it kept the peas standing. Did it only on a 25-acre spot in a, a field that the rest of it was peas also. But then we just made a line. It's like, well, I wonder if we're going to be able to see where the line is. And oh, gosh, we had a, a field day. And that was a year where they really tipped over, except where the flax was standing. So we had this 25-acre spot. Then we had uh, 140 acres next to it that didn't have anything on it. And we went out there and we sprayed a type of fungicide on it because we thought, well, you know, try to get it so the plant doesn't tip over. Long story short, yes, the flax did work. The companion crop did hold it up. It did what we wanted it to do, but it kept raining. And the flax kept growing, which I didn't realize that flax would just keep growing and keep flowering. And that's what was happening with it. And we would desiccate it, and it would not die. The peas were so dead that the flax was still holding them up, and we just wanted to combine it. And It was interesting. And then uh, the next year... Uh, we had such a disaster in the springtime that we didn't replicate the crop again because it was such a mess to try to get into. But I would like to try it again here in 2021 
I mean, it, it makes you think. You would probably get some different ideas. It cleaned really, really well. Uh, the flax came out of it just like we wanted it to. And I think by the time we got done, the flax averaged like 13 bushel an acre or something like that. And I took some time into cleaning it. So here's the end result. The peas actually ran 10 bushel better because they weren't all shelled out on the ground. We ended up getting 13 bushel of flax. We had to combine it a week later because we were trying to get the stuff to dry down. But then I took it to the local elevator. They were happy as ever to buy the flax for me. So the only thing that we had into it was our time of cleaning it. But otherwise, if you're to go, you know, dollar per dollar of comparing the side, the companion crop in with the flax, hands down, was a home run. But I don't know if I'd want to do days and days and days of combine like that because you would have lots of cleaning to do. And, and maybe this next year, stuff will mature right and it won't be all wonky. Maybe I could find a different flax variety that will mature a little bit sooner. A lot of guys are using canola, or some research places are using canola as a companion because that's easy to clean out. The sky's the limit. You know, what do you want to add into it? What's easy to clean out and such, so. What a thought-provoking episode there with Tony Wagner. He's such a great example of a farmer who's always thinking of ways to approach things from a new angle. Thanks, Tony, for sharing your ideas on the show. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss our next episode with Dr. Claire Coyne. If there is drought tolerance, if there is heat tolerance, if there is disease resistance in that in the genetics of that cultivar that you're planting, then that's an additional production cost that you don't have to bear. So plant genetic resources are a guarantee that we can continue to improve the farm gate value of that harvested crop. Again, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that upcoming episode. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing these episodes every other week throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.